Hi, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? Today's topic is databases and red light districts. I'm going to talk about what Shadow IT, if you've heard of that, and Mardi Gras, a party in New Orleans, have in common. For database administrators, the term constraints comes up a lot. It refers to rules placed on what types of data can be stored in a database and where it can be stored. Relational databases are containers that organize information into tables, columns, and rows, like a spreadsheet, but far more powerful, with linkages and relations between the tables. This logical organization of data led to billions in profits over the past 50 years. I spent a decade working for a company named Oracle, and this is one of the database heavyweight contenders. And so I've had a good amount of exposure to products built on both good and bad database design using Oracle databases. So having worked on products that use minimal constraints on database design, I learned the hard way that frontline support teams must do daily battles against customer issues that could have easily been avoided by a better design. So a lack of proper constraints on the database uh, which would be like saying you have no limits or rules on what can go into the database, it leads to a mess. It's a bunch of noise, bad data that eventually turns into just a jumbled heap of garbage. And there's a saying, it's crap in, crap out. And it's used to describe this scenario. It means if you can put anything in the database, then you're just going to have a, a pile of crap. Uh, there's a problem there. So when you go to use data and extract reports, if there's no organization or not good rules on what can go in, you can be pretty sure it will be badly formatted and unfit for consumption. Um, they're not going to be able to make business decisions on data that isn't well-formed, well-structured, um, and, and just designed poorly in how it's stored. So in addition to that, you will get errors springing up uh, due to the disordered mess that has been allowed into the database. The result is spending a lot of time doing what we call database surgery. Uh, that's if anyone, if you're familiar with SQL uh, structured query language, that's doing insert, update, delete statements. You're trying to fix something. You're trying to reorganize a big, a big mess. And mistakes when you're doing this kind of surgery can kill a business application, much like a surgeon um, doing exploratory surgery or, or repair on a person. It, it involves danger, obviously, if you're cutting into something. Um, it's not that different with a database than it is uh, with a person, except for you don't actually kill someone. So fortunately, working with software does not involve living things, usually. Uh, if you kill a database or an application, no one dies unless it's medical. If it's software supporting medical or critical inventory systems as well, it's very possible that the death of a database could lead to someone um, someone in a hospital or something, or on a, on a road, who knows? Um, software runs the world in many ways now, so whether that's good or bad, that's a whole separate conversation. But you can see where this is going. There's an obvious parallel to database management and our lives, both individually and socially as groups. Uh, database design is, is an attempt to bring order out of chaos. So bring Bring order out of chaos is what most human life is about. That's what we do uh, because so much of our lives is about ordering chaos. It is exactly why the opening book in Genesis is about bringing order to chaos. It's the first three lines of the Bible. And this may seem a stretch to you, but the urge to create 
the urge to create even a spreadsheet is to bring order to chaos. And this, this urge, if you've ever worked in an office and you feel like we need a spreadsheet for this, it has a parallel to the greatest mystery of why our universe and world exist at all. Uh, the act of creating is to take material and thoughts and try to give them a shape that makes sense. It's the same with a painter at an easel with a blank canvas or like a woodworker with a pile of wood and a saw and some screws. And um, but you start with physical resources um, or logical and database. Uh, and it's in a disordered state and an idea somehow comes to mind that in creation you can merge that sort of physical with the mental uh, just like we are body and soul. So creating is taking physical things, even if it's zero and ones as physical things and an idea and taking that sort of body and soul and organizing the chaos. So the act of creation starts with an action, an idea, and an organization is what we're, we're trying to do, which is saying order out of chaos. And that's why the saying, let there be light in, in the first day of creation does not refer to the sun. And that's people always get hung up on the creation story because there's a let there be light. And then it's later where the sun is created. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. How, the, how is there light without the sun? We, that doesn't make any sense. Um, whenever someone gets hung up on that uh, fourth day sun being, being created on the fourth day, um, I feel like the act of creation is misunderstood as the light on the first day is the action of merging that physical and spiritual body and soul. Uh, light is the first step toward ordering the chaos. Light is the act of creation. So um, there's a saying in the software world that every product started out as a spreadsheet. So um, if you think about products you use, whether it's Salesforce or some other massive product um, or even small product, whether it's like scheduling people's time uh, for work shifts or those things all started out as a spreadsheet. That's what the saying means. Every product started out as a spreadsheet. It was started by someone in the office to try to make sense of what is happening in the business. Of course, before this, before there was software, people did it on paper, on, on magnet boards or whiteboards or something. Um, now we just do it on a machine, of course. So um, you're trying to make sense of what's happening in the business or with your customers or even with something as simple as coffee machine duties. There's spreadsheets for who's bringing the coffee or who's buying the coffee next or who's making coffee. There's all these spreadsheets for just trying to keep things running on a schedule or with some order. So there's usually someone who is typically bothered by a disorder or something that's not happening. They're bothered just enough to take action and then they create a spreadsheet. So the same sense of chaos that leads someone to file for say running for city council is the same notion that drives an office worker to open up the spreadsheet application like Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets and start naming columns and entering data in rows. And it's the same thing when the artist first touches her brush to the canvas or when the spreadsheet creator clicks his, his or her file new option on the menu of Google Sheets or Microsoft Excel. The act of creating is underway. You know, we want order because chaos becomes unbearable. And you can do three things to deal with chaos. Three things. You can fight the chaos. You can flee the chaos. So there's your flight or fight or flight. 
Um, or you can live in the chaos. You can just keep going as just this kind of mess. If you choose to live in it and just stay there, you can handle it in a few ways, and some of which will lead you to peace and others that will make you insane. So you can fight, flight, or live in it, and how you live in it makes a difference. So the saying, um, there, is, there isn't a saying like this, but uh, we might say there's a spreadsheet for that. Um, that, that you've heard, I've heard that in businesses a lot. That was way before someone would say there's an app for that, which Apple made really popular in the early 2000s. There's an app for that. But in the business, you'd often say, oh, there's a spreadsheet for that. Here, let me send you the link or send, send you the, the SharePoint link or the, the Slack link or the Google Drive link, whatever. Um, once various people who build spreadsheets realize they have something useful that can be repurposed and sold, then they might become an entrepreneur and they realize what they're tracking has relevance for a wider audience and the spreadsheet then turns into a database and then something more serious and they stick a user interface on the front end, you get some web developers, um, you know, the data is often the driver of what you are trying to surface up to users to make their life easier to run a business. So in this way, a product is born. <laughs> the idea is conceived in the inventor's mind and willed into existence by tools and skills. But you need the idea first. There, there is a let there be light moment followed by taking action and doing the work of creating. And the let there be light moment is the fun part. Everyone has an idea for an invention. Everyone has an idea for a book they want to write um, or some, some, some idea. But the work of, of doing it is much more difficult, of course, and requires sort of getting off the couch. So the let there be light moment must happen first, though. So even um, an inventor must have uh, the idea and then the motivation to follow it through, whether it's a spreadsheet or a painting or a light bulb like Edison, who is obviously very motivated. A single spreadsheet managed by one person is no longer a workable solution after a while, though. Once the spreadsheet creator leaves the simple shire of the spreadsheet, if you want to call it that, to use a Hobbit reference, where the shire is simple and now you're wading out into the larger world, she faces numerous questions around access rights and restrictions. Uh, updates to a database can cause chaos without proper locks, uh, requirements, and referential integrity. So in database design, these are known as constraints which are like the castle walls controlling what data comes into the database, or like laws regarding what types of data are allowed to live in this little kingdom of data. People have become billionaires in finding out ways to represent data effectively, um, as without organization, data is just a pile of chaff that cannot even be burned for heat. Uh, data is utterly useless without organization. There's just, it's just a bunch of um, garbage. Now, too few constraints or too many constraints on your data, both create problems. So if I get started on database talk, this could be a long episode, so I'll keep this, this part short. I've spent a career poking around in databases and log files, looking at error codes and messages. It's not a very glamorous life, and I've often joked about being in what I call log file hell, where a customer will dump two gigabytes of log files uh, output into my lap for troubleshooting. Um, this blog slash podcast could easily change from the topic of 
falling and recovery and reverted faith into one about troubleshooting databases and software error codes. Uh, why did Peter Sink would just be about stack traces and bug fixing and system stabilization. The interesting thing, however, is even if the topic changed from restored faith to database troubleshooting, the main message would still be around order, disorder, and reordering, which is what the book of Genesis and the Gospels are really all about. To deny this yearning for order results in collapse rather quickly, because if there's no desire for order or no faith in the system, um, data systems can turn sour as quickly as milk. There's a kind of faith needed in a product for it to last. The data must provide a sense of order and meaning. It must be meaningful to the users. Otherwise, someone or something will replace the system or employees will just leave. Uh, that happened. I've seen that with bad products where people just find a new job. They're like, this is so bad and there's so many errors and so many problems. I can't even take it. So they just they just leave. Um, that's one thing in the IT world you see a lot is if someone doesn't like your product or your data or how it's working or uh, even beyond personnel type of things, which often cause people to leave, it's just that they don't like the product. Um, you know, they'll just, if they have any means to get away from a bad product, people often do. So there is faith required even in this purely uh, materialish world of software and data uh, because in the end, the users are human. But faith in a product to assist keeping order at a job or a corporation is different from the kind of faith needed to order your life, obviously. Um, but staring into the void of this materialism can, can be done, uh, can't be done for too long. Um, when times are good, you can do that. When everything's going well, you can do that. So um, you can just see this even in, in stories of the Bible where uh, non-believers obviously have always been a part of society and surely they roll their eyes at the religious nuts back in Jesus' time as much as they do today. But they are, uh, they are typically the fringe of society, not the center that holds all things together. So if you're talking about who is keeping the glue together, um, it's usually not the people in the, in the fringe. Uh, the fringe is, is there for a reason and we're going to talk about that now. Um, wise societies allow for this searching. It leaves small openings in life open to wanderers and non-believers. Uh, even faithful nations have dedicated days for wandering and loosening the rules uh, because holidays like Halloween and Mardi Gras and Carnival and Purim offer release valves for rebellion and rowdiness. Uh, towns and villages have annual festivals for drinking and staying up late because it grants a hall pass for the standard work and, and faith in something greater. So cities, if everyone's been to a city where they have streets or districts where vice is allowed, or at least ignored, um, driving or walking on these streets can make for jaw-dropping tourism for the uninitiated. Uh, I recall driving down Hastings Avenue in Vancouver, British Columbia in broad daylight where someone was using a toilet on the street that was just sitting there uh, no plumbing, but it's in use. Uh, prostitutes and ripped fishnet stockings were seeking clients. This is like one in the afternoon. Uh, you could see people smoking crack openly in doorways. And every boarded up house, uh, there was a body or two sleeping in front of, or apparently sleeping, perhaps dead. It was hard to tell. But um, you can see this in San Francisco, 
you could go downtown. I remember going there in the early 2000s, late 90s, and how interesting it was to go to San Francisco. And now San Francisco sort of all over downtown has become like this Hastings Avenue in Vancouver, where it's quite a sight. It's the closest thing to The Walking Dead I've ever seen. And San Francisco is a different story than some of these other cities I'm going to talk about. But all cities have a street like this. Um, there's Prospect in Kansas City. Uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, there's the Langstrasse, um, or like I said, Hastings in Vancouver. Um, every, every city has a neighborhood like this. Just like every small town has a bar or a house where the fringe can gather. <clears throat> People drive down these streets in the, in, the, in the bigger cities for a kind of poverty tour. I've heard it called poverty porn um, to see how the other half lives. So if you come from your um, nice suburban neighborhood and you go down to visit Langstrasse in Zurich or something, you'll see, oh, here's a place. It's a cautionary tale for parents to tell their children, uh, you see what happens, kid, you know, when you do drugs, you know, it's kind of one of those deals. It's a tour. Uh, small towns actually make for interesting interactions because a full variety of vices and worldviews and systems of belief are shoved very close to one another and they must interact. Uh, whereas in larger cities, you can live in one area without ever touching or interacting with those different from you. And people often uh, mock small towns for being like provincial, that they have no exposure to things. Uh, having lived in both cities and small towns, um, I would say in a small town, you actually have less option of isolation from the people who are completely different from you because they probably live next door. The town drunk and the mayor will be in the same diner or the same grocery store, or the same church, uh, the same bar for a beer. Uh, but what I'm driving at is, is uh, it's not a city or a country thing. It's not a race or a class or a na nation, a national thing. This is a human thing, uh, what I'm talking about, what I'm headed toward here. The fringe, the quote fringe element, in both small towns and cities are granted an outlet to avoid an eruption. Um, Think of Mount St. Helens, uh, where the whole top was blown off the mountain when it exploded instead of versus other volcanoes where it just kind of burbles out the top and runs down the side. Um, the fringe element is allowed to avoid this eruption where the entire top of the mountain explodes. Um, and it's because the complete suppression results in this like massive blast. So it's the same reason that sandboxes are placed outside for children rather than in the kitchen. You send the kids out to the sandbox, they make a mess, then they come back to the kitchen where there's order. Individuals in societies and families allow exploration to play out because it's going to play out whether you allow it or not. Even the most repressed legalistic societies have rebellion in secret underworlds. You have this in, every, in the Soviet Union with its uh, black markets that started um, every, in fact, people who like uh, The Handmaid's Tale, you can see the, the overly legalistic uh, Christian regime has these underworld parties where all of the sins are, are fringy and, and allowed. So uh, I have much more to say about that show. But anyway, uh, but this is not due to the repression or the rules as some would have us believe. This exploration and rebellion happens. It, it happens and it, it will always happen. And the, if you ask why does it happen, why do people want to, in ordered places, 
seek out disorder, it's because we are fallen creatures. That's why. Uh, we need a sandbox to play in. We need a development area, a place to thrash about, a place to go seek out the dragon to fight it or just see it. So just as cities cordon off a street for this exploration, database administrators create non-production environments, sometimes even called sandboxes, where any wild child programmer can go play, break things, try on data. They can run through the rows and flip tables. The key thing for keeping organization is that you do not experiment with what you already know works and is running the business. It's the reason a child's sand sandbox is not put in the kitchen. The kitchen is where the business of the house is done. Um, the main database that runs the business is not where you put your sandbox. So you allow the skunk work stuff over in the fringe, um, the development database, they'll call it. But you never, ever allow it in the database, which puts dollars on the balance sheet. The database that backs the front end of the website of Walmart or Amazon or um, those, you don't sandbox in those. You don't play around there. That's not Skunk Works area. Now, I guarantee you Walmart and Amazon and large companies like that have people working on new ideas, creative ideas, uh, the little let there be light moments of, of the underling programmers who have some um, idea that, yeah, here's your, here's your database. You go mess around over here. And if you can prove in five years, this is a good idea, we'll implement it. Maybe not five years, but feels like it. Uh, so this may seem a geeky metaphor to compare to cities with their red light districts or to our lives with their periods of rebellion, but it is not that different. Cities try to allow the inevitable rowdiness and they try to keep it within reason and database designers provide a romper room and if the city or the database admin had their way, they would prefer to have as little of this disorder or the side channeling as possible, but it's allowed because to stifle all experimentation and rebellion leads to the spread of mayhem to the entire city. In businesses, the, the rebel programmer forces, they will just start their own shadow IT if they're not allowed to do things. Um, users and party seekers in both of them will just stop asking for permission altogether. So if you're a citizen, um, and you want to have fun, you're going to find the party. So if you if the police lock down every single thing that ever happens, then it will blow up in different ways. So God also allows us some rope. He gives He lets us wander and explore. Otherwise, we may never learn what the rules are for in the first place. So the forgiveness of sins is not a get-out-of-jail-free card so much as it's an understanding and a loving father who knows of our need to seek out this dragon. God is not the rigid Pharisee who is like a city administrator that cracks down on every last jaywalker in the street. He's not like the database administrator that allows no access and no data for anyone and kills all creativity. He is the loving father that prefers we stayed, but knows we'll stray. And when we return from our dragon quest, beaten and broken, he will not even say, I told you so, that this is the father of the new covenant. That's what Jesus is talking about. The words of Jesus speak of this type of loving father, and this is our father, meaning yours and mine and everyone else's. For some reason unknown to us, God allows sin. 
This is perhaps the most confusing thing of all about the Creator. This drives many people away from belief because we know sin is the cause of suffering, so how can it be allowed? Yet, we can see the same pattern in our world happening all the time, which seems to confirm that we are indeed made in the image and likeness of God. When we try to bring order, we also allow the fringe, the side, the sandbox. And just as the city allows a small red light district in order to preserve a wider peace and order, um, the IT department does the same. It grants a corner for a little bit of chaos so the business can operate and maybe benefit from creative ideas that come out of the fringe. In all cases, good things can come out of this allowance for a kind of rebellion. The rebirth of a city, a business, or a person can happen out of this model. Beautiful things can come from those drifters and dreamers, as long as they don't get stuck there forever and stuck in despair. The key is to grow, to learn, to come back, and with God, the key is always to surrender, and rather than defeat the dragon, you accept a self-defeat, you accept the mystery, and then God defeats the dragon for you.